If you don't really believe that there is a now deeply rooted double standard of justice in this country, let me give you a couple of uh, cases to compare one against the other. You remember Jacob Chansley, the, uh, the guy with the big uh, feathers and the guy with the ridiculous outfit on January 6th. Now, this is a guy who went into the Capitol and um, basically paraded around. No weapons, no assault, no even implication of violence. He spent 317 days in solitary confinement, and he got 41 months in prison. The DOJ actually wanted more, but that's what the judge gave him. Now, let's compare his case with the case of another guy. This guy's name is Montez Terriel Lee. And this is a guy during a um, George Floyd riot, an Antifa BLM riot. What did he do? He set fire to a pawn shop deliberately. He was an arsonist. And there was a man inside the pawn shop named Oscar Lee Stewart, 30 years old, who was torched to death. This guy was burned and his body was found afterward. He obviously inhaled fumes and he suffocated to death as a result of the actions of this guy, Montez Terriel Lee. This is the black guy. I'm looking at a picture of him. He's kind of holding his hand up in a kind of black power salute outside the pawn shop. He was obviously very proud of himself and what he did. And he was making a defiant gesture outside the pawn shop. Like, look, I'm the guy who did this. And now I want to read from the Biden DOJ's statement of the judge asking for this guy not to get a typical murder sentence, not to get a life sentence, not to get a capital murder sentence, because the truth of it is if you commit an intentional felony and in the course of that felony, even though you didn't intend to kill that guy, in the commission of the intentional felony, you did kill that guy, it becomes a capital offense normally, normally. But for the Biden DOJ, these are, let's just say, understandable circumstances. And so the Biden DOJ wants 12 years for this guy for this crime, a crime that normally carries life. I want to read from the Biden DOJ's document. They say, Mr. Lee's motive for setting the fire is a foremost issue. Mr. Lee credibly states that he was in the streets to protest unlawful police violence and was, quote, caught up in the fury. Now, they say, the DOJ, as um, anyone watching the news worldwide knows many other people in Minnesota were similarly caught up. Quote, there appear also to have been many people who felt angry, frustrated, and disenfranchised, and who were attempting in many cases in an unacceptably reckless and dangerous manner to give voice to those feelings. Mr. Lee appears to be in that category. And then they go on to say, he appears to have believed that he was, quote, in Dr. King's eloquent words, engaging in, quote, the language of the unheard. Now, Martin Luther King at one point said a riot is the language of the unheard. And here you have the Biden DOJ invoking Martin Luther King to make this guy seem like not a nice guy, but someone who sort of got whipped up into a frenzy. And we can kind of understand the cause because after all, he was fighting for social justice. And then the judge goes along with this. The guy gets 10 years, which when you consider what he did is an absurdly light sentence. Here is the judge. The judge says, to Mr. Lee. And contrast this again with the judges who have been excoriating the January 6th protesters, nonviolent protesters. Oh, you're overturning, you're trying to overturn election, you're trying to mount a coup, you're endangering our system of government. Here's the judge. Her name is Wilhelmina Wright. 
She says to Lee that you are, quote, more than the person who celebrated your actions on social media. You are more than the person who destroyed that business by fire. You are more than the person who set that fire that killed a man. In other words, the real Mr. Lee is not the guy who did those things. Um, and then the basic idea is, this is how she concludes. So while there are no excuses for your actions on May 28, 2020, you have a chance to move forward and live a productive life. The judge is actually, even though the victim is dead, saying to the perpetrator, you know, I'd like to see you go on. I'd like to see you become a better person. We don't have to judge you entirely by what you did on that day. You were sort of carried away. You were articulating, quote, the language of the unheard. So look at the kind of gentle, understanding, empathetic way in which the DOJ treats this particular case and then contrast it with the tight-lipped, uh, glint-in-your-eye uh, anger uh, that judges, including in one or two cases Trump judges, have unleashed on protesters who showed up in Washington, D.C. on January 6th to simply express their frustration at what they believed was a completely stolen election. The Biden administration has, for cynical political reasons, essentially left the border open, uh, porous. And people are pouring through. Uh, record numbers of people, it seems like every month we exceed the record of the previous month. Um, the latest uh, data from um, December uh, shows a, another record. Um, 180,000 people crossed the border in December, surpassing the previous um, numbers. Uh, to give you an idea, only 75,000 crossed uh, in December of 2020. So a big surge. And this is all being done, not just with the complicity, but with the invitation of Mayorkas, Kamala Harris, and of course, President Biden himself. You can imagine what it's like to be a border patrol agent. And if you want to just get a sense of the kind of frustration that border patrol agents feel in being asked to do a job in an impossible situation, um, take a peek at this, listen. Now, I can't hear you. For evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. That's exactly what's happening here. Good men are doing nothing. You're allowing the legal aliens to be dropped off communities. You are doing something. No, sir, we're not. You are. No, you're sir. rescuing people every day. You're taking fentanyl off the streets every day. You're taking men that fed yes, on the streets. Criminal aliens off the streets year, every day. We've got the fentanyl death in the history of our country. In one year. In this country. So what's happening here? Well, Alex Mayorkas, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, is in town. And of course, this is just bringing out the anger uh, of the ordinary Border Patrol agents. And here's Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz, and he's in Laredo, Texas. And he's sort of trying to calm the Border Patrol agents and sort of put on a brave face like they're, they're doing the best job they can. And, um, and they're not having it. So, you know, Ortiz is basically saying, well, listen, you know, we're we're still doing a lot of good work, guys. You know, we're still stopping the fentanyl as best we can. And the Border Patrol agents are having none of it. They're saying, listen, there's record numbers of fentanyl coming in. Uh, it's they're coming in um, apparently with the with the kind of wink wink uh, of the Biden administration. And so what are we even doing here? We can't even use the word illegal. We can't call them illegal aliens. 
And then, of course, Ortiz goes, well, you, you, you call them illegals right now. I'm not, I'm not firing you, am I? So you've got a guy who's a supervisor, and he's obviously uh, an apparatchik. In other words, he has to represent the Biden administration. He has to pretend like their jobs are not being systematically abused. But I love the line where one of the agents is, in effect, quoting Edmund Burke. That's exactly what's happening here. Good men are doing nothing. And uh, I guess the implication here is if the Border Patrol agents don't speak out, it's kind of like if cops don't speak out when you have a kind of a system of organized lawlessness, the system is only going to continue to get worse. And so um, I feel terrible for these guys. Uh, they've put their lives on the line. They take risks going out every day. They're trying to serve their country. They're trying to do good work. And they're being spiked. They're being torpedoed by a callous uh, cynical and politically calculating Biden administration. You mentioned, you know, in, in this Brazil situation, the, the, the hospital reality that they basically just kind of, yeah, sub gave fluids and so forth. I've been thinking about, you know, the hospital situation here in the U.S. Because what is, what is the generally accepted protocol? I've heard it isn't a good one. <laughs> um, so maybe I'll get you to, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to just keep talking about the failures of our system, but it, it's a system that's failed because it's a corrupt system. And I already have talked about what they've done to early treatment. And when you turn your attention, you look at the hospital, it's again explained by cost. Everything that's in play, with the exception of dexamethasone, is a high-cost, high-profit item. That's what's in play. And so let's talk about what that is. They have recommended, since the spring of 2020, remdesivir, which costs $3,000 a dose. They give it IV infusion over five days. And they did it based on a study which purportedly showed a small reduction in the length of hospitalization. So for $3,000 a dose of a medicine with well-known side effects that failed miserably in, in, the, in, in Ebola, in the Ebola virus, it not only showed it was toxic in Ebola, now it's the standard of care in the United States. And what, 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 what I find is the proximate cause of death across the world from COVID is a horrific undertreatment in the hospital with corticosteroids. The national policy, the NIH recommended guideline dose is six milligrams of dexamethasone. That is a tiny, pathetic, anemic dose of corticosteroids. It is less than what I give 80-year-old patients with emphysema when they start to wheeze. And you have patients crashing onto ventilators with whited out lungs, with very little gas exchange that is preserved, and they're giving them what I call a homeopathic dose of a corticosteroid. We have now dozen studies showing the higher doses you use, the more lives are saved. And yet they keep it at that artificially low dose. Everyone's sticking to the protocol. And, and people are dying from undertreatment with steroids. It's happening across the country and across the world. The science shows you need to use higher doses and they're sticking to this dose. And they try to pair it with these expensive, what I call ibs and abs, like tocilizumab and baricitinib, these cytokine blocking agencies where also high dollar cost by the pharmaceutical companies. It, you know, it's the same theme over and over again. We live in a system that favors high profit medicines. Those are the only things in play and they don't work. They are failing and people are dying because they're not being offered and you, you, they're not being given effective medications because they're too cheap. 
And you know, you, I can't help think about this. I've talked about this with a number of, of, of folks that I've had on the show, but you know, there's this traditionally, right, doctors, you know, it's the doctor's responsibility, right, to treat the patient based on what they understand to be the patient's needs. And there isn't this sort of, you know, here's the one way that everything needs to be done from on high. Like, I, that's, that's a new thing, isn't it? Unprecedented. I've never, Paul Merrick and myself, we talk about it. What's happened in COVID is absurd. I mean, the, the, maybe the entire practice of medicine has been co-opted now. Like literally, we're being told what to treat patients with, what dose and what duration. And when you try to stray from that, you do what's called, you know, old school, old fashioned doctoring, which is you put your head together, you figure out what's working, what you try a few things, you see the mechanisms of action, you try to come up with medicines to counter those. Anytime you stray from this total, almost totalitarian protocols, right, that the hospitals are being paid to give, right, they're getting bonuses for using these protocols, you, your career ends or your job ends, you know? Like, I had, to, I had to leave my hospital in order to take care of patients. I refused to take care of patients without being able to take care of them. Paul Marek's career ended because they literally restricted his use of a number of repurposed drugs. They, they made, they outlawed the use of his expert. And he, by the way, he is essentially probably one of the top world experts in the therapeutics around COVID. He's more well-read, more studied, more experienced on treating COVID than almost anyone. And his protocol gets outlawed from a hospital in view of the entire public. Why there's not an outrage or a revolt. I mean, yes, some newspapers covered it. But literally, this is what's happening. They're literally restricting, they're not only restricting medicines, but they're restricting physicians. You know, and that, that, you know, that march that we're going to tomorrow, it's not just about vaccine mandates. It's about all the restrictions and loss of our freedoms, about the loss of autonomy of our physicians, the restriction to life-saving, effective, you know, low-cost medicines. I mean, it's unprecedented. I've never, ever been told in my entire career that I can't use a medicine. The only time it was, I think I've been restricted to use... Um, Intravenous Tylenol because it's extremely expensive. So they put, they put, uh, you know, you had to get special permission to use it. But other than that, I've never been restricted to use any medicine that I thought would help my patient. So I mean, I and let I, me can I add one yeah, thing? Yeah, please. Across the country, ivermectin, one of the literally safest medicines known to man, ivermectin throughout the country is removed from the formulary of almost all the hospitals. Any hospitalized patient, none of the doctors can use ivermectin. It happened to me while I was working for a hospital. I worked for a hospital. And, you know, the CDC, when they started their propaganda campaign against ivermectin, the CDC sent out a threatening memo saying that people were, po were getting poisoned and dying of overdoses. That memo was quickly debunked. The data supporting that memo is actually vanished. It was overstated and it was hyperbole, but yet the message was heard. The message was heard by the nation's hospitals, physicians, and pharmacists. The hospitals started removing it from formularies and the pharmacists stopped filling. You know, when you see this awesome power, and it's not awesome, it's fearsome power of these agencies and their ability to control the practice of medicine in this country, it's frightening, it's terrifying what they're capable of. With that one single memo, do you know how many thousands of people died because of the loss of the ability to get ivermectin? You know, I suddenly started calling pharmacists, and I had pharmacists in my face telling me that they won't fill it, and that the FDA doesn't approve it. It's absurd. The CDC actually, in their memo, 
stated that the FDA has not approved ivermectin for COVID. That is a misleading statement, deliberately misleading statement. Number one, the FDA doesn't have to approve it coming forward. We don't need the FDA for anything. It's called off-label prescribing. It's generally championed, and it's a very common practice in the system. It's fully legal, and it's even encouraged when you don't have an effective medicine. Yet the CDC puts in their memo chiding the nation's doctors that the FDA hasn't approved it. The FDA admits on their website they haven't even looked at the data. No one's going to pay for them to approve it. There's no money behind ivermectin. And so, you know, it's so open and unsubtle what they're doing. And, and, and you know, I, 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 that's all I do is go around and talk about it. So I'm trying to call attention to the absolute, you know, pervasive corruption in, in the conduct of this war on COVID. We're being hampered and handcuffed. And, and you know, it, it, if we had the freedom to treat this man, this would have been in the, in the rearview mirror a long time ago. It would have been gone in 2020. Once, once everyone knew that hydroxychloroquine worked and then ivermectin and any number of compounds worked and they were in, in mass deployment throughout the country, you wouldn't have all this fear-mongering and all, all, all the societal disruptions. It would have become what it is, which is a treatable disease. This is a highly treatable disease. You know, I, I, I'm just thinking back to this story that I, as I was preparing for the interview, I just, I, it was, I found a kind of popular story on the Epoch Times, a website um, basically, you know, the headline is wife stands off with hospital to keep her husband alive and wins. Um, you know, the Ann and Scott Quiner, I think you say, are you familiar yeah. with the case? I'm f yes, I'm familiar with that case and many of the many dozens now cases of in particular the work of one lawyer, um, who has successfully won most of the cases. And I have to tell you as a physician, <clears throat> I don't want to be in the position of treating a patient and having a lawyer tell me to use a medication that I don't believe works. But there's a simple solution how to avoid that situation is you read. You know, physicians of the world pick up a book and read. Look at the studies. Look at, you know, you can convince yourself it's working. So I, I don't want to champion the idea that a lawyer or a family should use the courts to direct the care of their patients. But when there's a corrupt action preventing a patient from getting access to a life-saving medication, bring on the lawyers. And that's what they're doing. These lawyers are winning these cases, but the hospitals obstruct at every turn. You know, the judges are giving the orders, but then the hospitals say, not one physician in our hospital is willing to give it. So they can't give it. So then they'll force them to find a physician in the community who's willing to write it. And then they say none of the nurses will administer it. Then they have to hire a nurse to go in, and sometimes if they're on a vendor, put it down a feeding tube. I mean, do you, do you understand the level of absurdity and atrocity that, that, that we've been reduced to? Literally, you have lawyers advocating for one of the cheapest and safest medicines known to man. Welcome, welcome, welcome today to the uh, voice that is out here on the great plains of Texas, bringing you hope on the Lance Walnut Show in the midst of America's great persecutions. I did not hear the applause at the end of my musical intro, which gives me a psychological um, challenge in terms of 
Well, I just had to overcome today the feeling that uh, people don't like what I'm saying. You know, sometimes when you're a voice in the wilderness, people don't approve of what you're saying. And uh, I want to uh, go on the record right now and say there is a need for engagement by the grassroots at a level that we have never seen before. And we've got to advance from simply being listeners and posters and Facebook junkies and gab and getter enthusiasts to actually letting our voices be felt uh, in the political process. You got to go to the precinctstrategy.com. You got to be able to get involved with your local elections. And the reason I say that is because we're in a showdown with Goliath right now, and we are David. David's got a slingshot, and the slingshot is the populist movement. We can hit this giant in the forehead. It's the giant of huge media complex super PACs like CNN and, MSCMM, CNN and MSNBC working with the Democratic Party. you got to understand something. So many of our people, including your family members, including large parts of the church and the evangelical base, which is 40% of the Republican mojo, that's 40% of the people putting them in office, they are confused because they listen to too many sources and the media has got them. For instance, let me give you an example. Mercedes Sparks, you're with me today. Thank you for being with us today. The, the spirit of fear is so on the minds of the masses, including our people, because oh, sure. the church failed to respond to COVID with a strong you know, pushback. They all kind of like, oh, we'll shut down and socially distance too, I guess. And so uh, and then, then, they're, then they're genuflecting to, uh, well, we're not racist. We embrace Black Lives Matter. We embrace everybody. So they've got, they've got, they just kind of like wimped out in terms of so many, so many people on the front line. So the church is confused. And instead of Omicron being what it really is, which is a kind of a severe shock to your system for a day as a flu, and then diminishes after that, uh, and, and yes, there's more and more cases of it, but it's more and more cases of a cold. And instead of seeing it for what it is, many many of our people are, are are joining in to the hysteria and paranoia that has been put into them by media. Absolutely. They really are. And, you know, I really struggle. Like I said, I never know if I should look here or if I should look at you because you're pointing at me like this and I feel like, all right. But what I want to do is I want to agree with you because absolutely. I mean, we saw churches shut down, not just for the two weeks, but for months at a time, because in many ways the church is like another entertainment zone, right? It's like sporting events got thrown into that category. But yeah, I agree with you. And I think too, in, in other parts of the country, you know, we live in, we live in Texas, the freest state in the freest country in the entire world. And when you look at what these other states are going through, I mean, just just inundated with constant fear of you got to wear the mask. You got to have the vaccine passport. If you don't have that, uh, it's, you're, everything's going to fall apart. And I just, it's so weird because Lance, I almost feel like I want to do like a documentary where I walk around town and I can just show it's like, here's me going into Hobby Lobby, no mask. Here's me going into Starbucks, no mask. And it's like, life is normal down here. But in so many other parts of the country, we have like, at this point, Lance, you talk about this, we have sh like almost like sheep states and goat states, which is kind of a weird thing to say. You might have to define it for the people at home, but it's just, it's like two different Americas. We have two different Americas we're living in right now. Yeah, and, and, and I want to give you guys a really incendiary soundbite because I know how people are listening to me that are, they're just listening like the Pharisees mm -hmm. so that they could find fault with you. You know, Jesus had a great moment in a synagogue where he was there, and the Bible says that he, the power of the Lord was present to heal, mm -hmm. which meant that God was there to go deliver people and help them. But uh, the Pharisees were sitting and watching Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. They weren't seeing 
if uh, anything good could come out of this. They were mm-hmm. seeing if he would violate one of their religious laws so that they could accuse him. They were watching him for the purpose of accusing him. Mm-hmm. That's like a lot of people that listen to programs for the purpose of accusing. Now, I want to say something which is going to satisfy and gratify the Pharisees in the front row. <laughs> Do you realize that January 6th, I did not fully understand. I knew there were multiple purposes uh, for this insurrection narrative, this fiction, this actually, you know, Matt Getz said something interesting. He had a little press conference, which we should really get. I want to get the soundbite on this, him and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And he said, this wasn't an insurrection. It was a Fed-surrection. The federal government was playing around with this thing, and they're, now, they're playing, now they're playing whack-a-mole trying to hide from accountability for their role in helping create the Fed-surrection. Yeah. Woo! So I heard that. I thought, well, you know, this, is, this has got to get out there. But what in the world's happened? The reason why they're likening this to Pearl Harbor and to 9-11 and to the Kennedy assassination and, and Martin Luther King's, I mean, any kind of hyperbole they could find up to, to link what basically comes down to a nothing burger into something as uh, the Civil War, because they had to change the conversation from the economy that is freaking people out uh, to the uh, the misery index over the border, the polling tank numbers, the tanking poll numbers uh, of, uh, of Biden, and the fact that uh, the COVID, federalized COVID response has screwed up so bad that they're just saying, states, you just do what you got to do. So they're changing the subject to January 6th as they think that's the best way to punch back at their political opponents and clear the way for voting rights changes so that they can permanently lock in the Democratic Party in Washington in control of all future elections by scrubbing the states from their rights and stuffing every state with ballot boxes without ID so that they can rig the national elections from now on and be the permanent party in power. And so they needed to make as much of a crescendo about the attack on democracy so they could be the solution to the attack, Mm -hmm. which is this. So now Biden comes out and he begins his, he's willing to like suspend the filibuster. We're going to talk about that for a minute. All you've got to understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to, the uh, the Senate is on a hair wire, uh, like, you know, 50-50 split. He's, he, so he doesn't have a whole lot of wiggle room, but he's going to try to push for rigging the system in Washington to rig the elections of the nation. Do you guys understand how dangerous and criminal the Democrat Party mind is in the, how they go about acquiring power and sustaining power? The only people that are, that are uh, amateurs compared to them are the Republicans, who I don't think are, are any nobler, but they just don't have the courage to do what the Democrats do to have power. But listen to what he says. Today, Biden says, I'm making it clear to protect our democracy. This is why they had to make the insurrection of democracy attack. I see mm-hmm. it now. It was to set up the narrative for voting rights changes. I'm making it clear to protect our democracy. I support changing the Senate rules. Whichever way they need to be changed to prevent a minority of senators from blocking action on voting rights, sending the Democrats to protect democracy is like sending Epstein and CNN to protect your nursery. These guys have to be kept out of power and they have to be removed by a populist movement. 
What do you say, Mercedes? I think 2022 is going to be characterized as the year for the battle for states' rights. Because I think more and more we're coming back to the 10th Amendment to say we are actually the United States of America. We're just not America. We're states that agreed to come together and to form a federal government. But what's not outlined in the Constitution needs to be defined by the state. And so we see it with the vaccine mandates. We're going to see it with the voting rights. And I think more and more we're going to come back to this battle that says um, America itself is formed by, you know, by individual sovereign states. Again, we just talked about that sheep states and goat states, but how Texas wants to govern itself when it comes to abortion. I mean, I'm telling you, it's coming, it's going to come back to states' rights this year. I think this is the year of states' rights. I think, I think the audience needs to really get this. We look forward to your chat, your comments in the chat thread, by the way. So, you know, we want to know if you're tracking with us, if you agree with us, if you disagree with us, if there's other aspects of this you need, you think we need to be looking at. But uh, this sheep and goat thing is, is uh, new language for many of you, but it's going to come in more and more because it's it's the odd language two thousand years ago uh, in an agrarian community of farmers that Jesus was teaching, and he if he was alive today teaching, I, he'd probably be talking about cryptocurrency and government. He'd be doing news like we do it. He wouldn't be talking about sheep and goats, that's for mm -hmm. sure. But the, but they're they're metaphors. They're they're symbols of two types of animals. The sheep being that which uh, is led by a shepherd, and a goat being that which rebels symbolically against the shepherd's management. So you have states and federal governments, like California and New York, are very much like the federal government in that they're the anarchy that wants to rule. It's a weird thing. They are lawless but want to be in charge. Who's lawless but wants to be in charge? organized crime. Mm -hmm. And that's the closest thing I can get to the beast. The beast system, the Bible describes, is a criminal enterprise organized to crush virtuous opposition. Virtue is the sheep. Sheep is the one who is simply trying to do the right thing and is trying to protect their rights, their rights to their faith, their family, and to their hard-earned cash that they work for and, and play lawfully to acquire and pay taxes to be able to invest. And these people are being attacked by the system. Yeah, That's what's happening now. So well, we only got one minute left in this segment, and, and I don't want to lose sight of where we've been. We're talking about January 6th being a significant date when the populist movement of 2 million probably people went up to Washington. And, and I would say that they lacked sufficient shepherds as sheep. Mm. And what happens is a goat herder can get in there and manipulate the sheep. And I think a whole lot of those dummies that you see lollygagging into the Capitol, going in with their selfies and walking in between the two lines of the red velvet rope, mm -hmm. not defacing the, the statues, not like the left would do, not pulling things down and crushing them, not burning them and urinating on them like Antifa does, mm -hmm. but honoring the Capitol, except for a couple of people who wanted to go into Pelosi's office, which you've got is sheep that were set up. And I'm tired of that. We need shepherds for the populist movement, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the next segment when we come right back. This week has been a good week, people. I want to give you some encouragement. If you could see on the Hill, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I did a whole day of broadcasting yesterday. We had, we had you know, broadcasts. I, I work with Jerusalem for, a, you know, doing a Middle East show on explaining the world from America's perspective and Middle East. And, uh, and it wasn't until last night around maybe, I don't know, 10 o'clock that I got to catch up a bit on 
the day's news that I realized I had missed something yesterday. I don't want to miss today. And that was Fauci was on the ropes with Rand Paul, bam, calling him out on his role in the origin of the Wuhan virus. And you could see Fauci have his meltdown moment like Hillary Clinton. Remember her with the glasses, you know, in the Benghazi hearing, slamming her hands down in exasperation. The moment they got close to you killed Americans. She goes, what difference does it make? Blah, blah, blah. It was, a, it was that moment. I mean, I'd like to play both side by side. And Fauci goes basically, what difference does it make? About Why do you keep on making it personal about me? When a million people have died, you know, well, we're making it about you because I think you killed them. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the answer. Anyway, he's getting hammered on the hill. Meanwhile, Cruz and, and, and uh, Senator Cotton, Senator Cruz, thank God for the Rand Pauls, Senator Cruz and Tom Cotton's, the Matt Getzes and Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and the Jim Jordans. It's too bad we can name on our 10 fingers who the people are that represent the populist movement. And I say populist because I don't believe those of you that are listening to me have any affection for the Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy country club party of Republicans who, who have been in power and never used it. While the Democrats, who I remind you, were not in power, were able to put the president and the majority on the ropes with the Russian collusion hearings. And how do they do that? They did that because the Republicans don't fight and the people are tired of having to roll up their sleeves and go educate themselves and have to labor in the field to do the job that we actually are electing people to do for us as representatives in a republic, which is how a republic supposed to work. Mm -hmm. So the citizen movement is afoot. And... Um, and so let, let, let's 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 keep on pressing in on what what we're what we're talking about. Biden jumping off of 9/11 and uh, you know December 7th, the date that we live in infamy, and the insurrection, which is a fake event in Washington that the feds still have to be accountable for. Cruz starts to nail them, just like Fauci was getting nailed. This is on multiple points. We were winning yesterday, and we were winning. I think because if you don't mind me getting spiritual, I think the pent up prayers of a multitude since the November theft of the election are having their providential manifestation in the pushback of, of agents with courage using their agency in the system of government God gave us to push back with truth and expose the lies that, are, that, are, that have been able to operate in government without exposure and without accountability. Let's see I want you to see how government works. If you haven't seen this before, you're going to want to see it. If you have seen it before, I want you to pay attention to something. Notice how the FBI, which is now under the, the, the deep state influence of the, of the bureaucracy, uh, is refusing accountability to the American people regarding their participation on January 6th. Let's go ahead and play the Ted Cruz cross-examination. How many FBI agents or confidential informants actively participated in the events of January 6th? Sir, I'm sure you can appreciate that I can't go into the specifics of sources and methods. Uh, did any FBI agents or confidential informants actively participate in the events of January 6th? Yes or no? Yes or no? 
Sir, I can't, I can't answer that. Did any FBI agents or confidential informants commit crimes of violence on January 6th? I can't answer that, sir. Did any FBI agents or FBI informants actively encourage and incite crimes of violence on January 6th? Sir, I can't answer that. Ms. Sadburn, who is Ray Epps? I'm aware of the individual, sir. Uh, I don't have the specific background to him. Well, there are a lot of well, people who are understandably very concerned, understandably about, very Mr. concerned about Mr. Epps. On the night of January 5th, 2021, Epps wandered around the crowd that had gathered. And there's video out there of him chanting, tomorrow, we need to get into the Capitol, into the Capitol. This was strange behavior, so strange that the crowd began chanting, fed, 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 fed. Ms. Sandburn, was Ray Epps a fed? Sir, I cannot answer that question. The next day. The next day. On January 6th. Crazy. So, uh, Ray Epps, it should be noted, uh, suddenly, suddenly, out of nowhere, we find that the committee, the January 6th committee, uh, um, had, had interviewed Ray Epps now a year ago. Now, why would they interview him a year ago? They had interviewed him. And they, oh, they just found the, um, the interview, and he denied uh, having any government, um, no, he denied working for the FBI and the, and the federal government. But it was a carefully worded denial that, uh, that was reiterated in the last 48 hours by Ray Epps, which begs the question, why, therefore, would someone who was so conspicuously coordinating his efforts with other unidentified co-conspirators, why weren't, uh, why wasn't he brought forth for interrogation? Why weren't his text messages made available to other committee to, to uh, people? Why wasn't there a surveillance uh, of his whereabouts? In other words, why is he free from any uh, investigation? Clearly. He's working with the government in some capacity, and they're covering for it and giving him cover. He's lying. Yeah, because, I mean, he, I mean, you know, Cruz has had a, a heck of a week here. But, I mean, he's come back strong with this whole interrogation and cross-examination, essentially. I mean, how hard is it? If he's not a Fed, then you say, no, he's not a Fed. If you don't want to, like, incriminate yourself, you say... Well, I I can't say I can't I can't expose yeah, that. Yeah. It, like, well, and, and, and so this, he's a Fed. This, I mean, uh, this is where the populist movement is going to start to get awakened, and it's and it's awakening right now. This is called the Great Awakening, people. This is all part of it. You can't just nicely slice and say, "Well, this is spiritual and this is natural." No, because when you're awakened to righteousness, every part of your life is right, mm -hmm. and this is a righteous awakening happening right now. When they say, as you know, Senator, we can't develop sources and methods. Sources and methods. Oh, in other words, under the cover of trying to protect the FBI methodology, because they could reveal some, you know, somebody else, expose someone else who's working in the dangerous terror cells of the nationalists. Yeah. Uh, they don't have to reveal their sources and methods. They just simply have to say, was this guy 
part of your sourcing method? I don't mm -hmm. have to know how you did it. I just need yeah. to know if he's part of it. Yeah, exactly. That would have been a good question too. You know, what I, What bothers me though, Lance, too, is like, who holds these people accountable then? If you're testifying in front of Congress and you get like a get out of jail free card, essentially, you get a pass by oh, saying, well, I well, can't reveal my sources and methods. Well, this is Tom Cotton's interview. We don't have it for you guys. But on the other side, that the next senator that was up allowed, because they all get a chance, they know it's a media moment. Mm -hmm. And and let's face it, there's politics here. Ted Cruz is... is he wants to be seen as the alternative to Trump for the party. Um, and so he, these moments are important to him. Tom Cotton also will run against Cruz in a primary for president mm -hmm. if Trump isn't around. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cotton had his moment, and he did the same thing, only he did it with the FBI, assistant director of the FBI, under Ray, since they can't get Ray to do anything. Wow. So, and he said the same stuff, only he was stupider. At least this gal acknowledge the existence of the guy like they don't know lee harvey oswald exists so they know they know who the characters are the media's covering um but uh the fbi assistant director over there he goes uh i don't even uh, know who you're talking about I, I i don't have any information and cotton basically gets so frustrated with him he said did you prepare at all for this did you <laughs> know what we were going to be doing today That's i mean funny. it was almost like did you bring your homework to school here mm -hmm. but to your point they can get away with it because the system is rigged, like Donald Trump says, so that there's no recourse except for what we're doing right now. Do you know what jerks the slack out of these guys? Media. Media. You know why? Because media goes around the controlled game in Washington to the people. And when the people get upset they feel it in their home constituency, mm. and the, the fires start burning their butt in their own backyard. It's a it's a grassroots, local, state by state, sheep move of a populism, which means the sheep versus the goats, the states versus the Fed, David versus Goliath, and this is a battle we can win because we're starting to get organized. You know, also so strange too. It's like she says when when asked about you know Ray Epps, she goes, "Well, I'm not I'm not really familiar with him." You know, essentially, like I, I vaguely I know who he is. But then he was on the like top fifty wanted from that day. Remember when he was first pictured with all of the people, and they're like, "Do you have any information about these people?" And his pictures on there. It would be like, how do you lose somebody like that and say, "Oh, he's like on our top list," but no, I, I kind of vaguely know who he is. You're like, that's so. I mean, just. It's just so clear that like it's it's an intentional evading of telling the truth of what happened that day and who he was. Maybe he wasn't a Fed, but maybe he worked with them and in forget, some capacity. And Epps. I want to know about the guy with the microphone. You guys saw it. Go watch yeah. the Tucker thing. We got a guy. Who puts the scaffolding up? I want to know who erected the scaffold. Who paid for the scaffold? Who who gave access to who got on the scaffold? I want all that stuff exposed. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Ooh, we got some good news for you when you come back. Well, we got good news for you because this this is going to be exposed starting in November. I'm going to tell you how. We got a plan, people. We have a populist plan. We're talking to you about this when you come back. <laughs>